morning to you, Christ Central, and uh, welcome to our Sunday worship service today. We're going to cover the topic of grief. Grief. I've entitled Grief, Let It Be. If you have your Bibles, which I always encourage you to bring, but it'll also be projected overhead, let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll pick up a couple verses in the life story of King David back in 2 Samuel. Okay, so let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Excuse me while I find it. Okay. Here now, this is God's word. For everything there is a season and a time for every manner under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Then 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. David said to Nathan, Nathan a prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And verse 15 is then Nathan went to his house. Okay, this is God's word so far. Ecclesiastes, wisdom, poetic literature tells us there is a time, a season, okay, requires extended reflection and time. It's a process to not only dance, not only rejoice, not only build up, not only to heal, but there is a season and a time to mourn and to grieve. The scriptures are giving us absolute license to do that. Grief. So let it be. Let it be. And obviously I'm not talking about going to karaoke and singing the famous Beatles song. I'm talking about a much harder but maybe more painful and yet incredible God-ordained work. There is a time to grieve. There is a time to grieve. I am not good at this. I'm very poor at it. I've been learning it for 26 years, how poor I am at grief. But if I don't grieve well, and if you don't grieve well, when it is appropriate to do so. I mean, if you don't grieve properly in that season, here's what you're going to probably do. You're going to grieve a lot of other people. Did you know that? Did you know if you don't grieve well, you're going to grieve other people, especially those who are closer to you, because there's going to be a certain rage or cynicism. There's always going to be some mis-expectations that are never fulfilled. Oh, I remember so many times, there was a no-win situation for pe people when I was in grief. I wanted you to talk to me, and I also didn't want you to talk to me. <laughs> it was like... People had to dance around on eggshells. And if you don't grieve properly, you'll always have this pressure, kind of it'll come out, and 
where you make people feel like, well, you know, you never really do understand me. Like, you don't really get me. You can't help me. If you don't grieve well, other people are going to get pretty grieved. Also, if you don't grieve well, it's going to continue to grieve you. Now, that force and that weight of grief will either beat you down over time. This is guaranteed, by the way. It'll just weigh and kind of deteriorate and beat you down over time. Or for some of us, you just have a dramatic all of a sudden just fall apart. The wise author of Ecclesiastes says, there is a time, there is a season, let it be. Grieve, grieve. After I wept a lot up to and during and maybe the night of my dad's funeral, October 1992, which occurred on a Saturday, somehow rolled into church, just bleary-eyed on a Sunday. Don't remember a thing. That Monday morning, because I had taken a semester off from college, I just went right back to work. There's an internship in Torrance. And although I could not articulate it, what I was doing was I had just better busy myself. I had just better get on with life. And instinctively I thought, I cried enough this week. I hope I'm done now. So about two and a half months passed by, and I volunteered as a counselor, as a teacher for a youth group retreat at a church in downtown Los Angeles where we go sleep over for like days on end, over in the Big Bear Mountains. And I remember the final night while my youth group kids who I loved and wanted to pray for and teach them the Bible and talk to them about how to become a godly man or woman. Uh, they were singing, they were rejoicing, a lot of weeping, and, you know, people were responding to the message of the gospel that night. And I was sitting towards the back, and I just couldn't help it. I ran out the back door, left the place of worship, wandered aimlessly by myself to this snow-covered field. I still remember the snow-covered field, deserted. And I just plopped on the ground on top of the snow, and I just wailed. I just wailed. I don't know how long. That occurring over the Christmas holidays showed me that emotionally speaking, there was a lot of grief that was pent up that needed to come out. Now, I am not saying that all of our expressions and forms of grief have to be that emotional. A lot of it is not emotional. Most of the time, my grief was this thick, heavy, lethargic fog. It was like a numb, mindless, unrelenting haze. And you don't know why you're so tired. You don't know why you feel so kind of out of it. You don't know why you feel so slow. You don't know why things that used to give you so much pleasure and enjoyment just don't. That's grief. This week I picked up a very old copy uh, of C.S. Lewis's masterpiece entitled A Grief Observed. And I tend to date things when I buy a book or purchase a book. And it actually says 1992. So here's the book that I turned to right after my dad died. And I got to confess you, I never read it since. Like, I don't want to touch it. Like, I don't want to go back into that. But I do remember reading it 
And this week was the second time I reread it. Do you know how C.S. Lewis opens after he lost his beloved wife by the name of Joy? He said his heart was ripped apart. The reason why he wrote the book was he says he was on the precipice of losing all faith in God. Like, how, what do I do with my cancer-ridden wife who just died? And he wrote this book, Reflections. Do you know how he opens? Here's his first line. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. Later on in the book, the line that absolutely captures my soul, and of course, as an English lit professor, who could put it better? In describing his wife's loss, and of course I put in my dad, this absence or his absence is like the sky spread over everything. It's like the sky spread over everything. I don't like grief. I avoid grief. I think C.S. Lewis tells me why I don't like grief. I hate feeling afraid. I hate it. I don't like being in situations in which I don't have an answer to. I don't like things that are unsolvable and unfixable. Uh, I tend to be an optimistic person, so I don't like things that seem maybe guaranteed to maybe get worse over time, not better. I don't like feeling like I'm out of control. I am afraid of being afraid. And grieving, perhaps, is the most humbling demonstration of what I like to do least in life. But I've got four observations on my own from the text. Four observations about grief. Number one, grief is good for you. Grief is very good for you. There is a season, there is a time. Let it be. Because after all, grief matches reality. If you don't grieve well like me, you're actually pretending and detaching from reality. You're not in touch. Like you're just not in touch. You're not in touch with your heart. You're not in touch with the world. You know, you might not be in touch with your spouse, your BFF. BFF. You know why? You, you, for so long, have avoided and been so afraid of being afraid of coming to an abject low place <clears throat> where you physically demonstrate you don't know nothing. You can't control anything. But when you do, when you do, grief is really good for you. Because it matches the reality if you lost an ability. Right, professional athletes or college scholarship athletes, like they break their leg on a slide into second base. Do you know how grievous that is? You lost a physical talent. A lot of other people, you lost a mental ability. You lost some sharpness. You lost your memory. If you speak for a living... You can't speak anymore. Your voice is gone or you stutter or something has happened. Grieving matches the reality that you lost for some of you, your childhood or your youth. In a lot of different ways, you were forced to grow up too fast. Grief matches the reality of losing a loved one, an absolutely precious dear loved one close to you. 
And I remember for some time, years on end, I almost physically palpably felt, I thought my dad had become a, co- a ghost. I thought he was in my house. I-, I thought I could feel him. I thought I could smell him. I thought I could talk to him. I thought he was still around. And then when I would realize that is not reality, I would grieve some more. Now I want to tell you, friends, if you lost a loved one and you're grieving now, it does get better. A lot of that, that shock and trauma does get better. It gets better and better. It never completely leaves you, though, this side of heaven. But as you grieve, God does, some, God does something with it. Grief also matches the reality of relational loss. Your closest friend is no longer your closest friend. Or you moved geographically, and you lost your family and friends. You know how grievous that is, too? I put my wife through that at the age of 23. She left South Beach, Miami, Florida, left her family and friends, and then married me. And became a pastor's wife at a kind of a little bit more conservative, kind of buttoned-up, suit-and-tie church in the suburbs of Virginia. That's a grief. You've lost children, God forbid. You've lost the ability to have children. Or you've lost your dreams for your children. You've lost what you thought or what you so hoped it would be like with your children. There is a time to grieve. You may lose work. You may lose status. You may lose your income. You may lose your career. You may lose your significance. Now, every single thing I mentioned here, either I have experienced or I have experienced them with you here at the Family of Christ Central. Every single one. Grief is natural. Grief is normal. Grief is a part of human life. It will always be here on this side of heaven. And it's good for you. That's why Ecclesiastes says, let it be. Here's a second observation. Grief is not only good for you. Second, grief is not about God getting back at you. Grief is not about God getting back at you. You see this little verse we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13? where David was told by the prophet Nathan who had to rebuke and confront a popular, charismatic, royal king that he was dead wrong, that he had committed crimes and atrocious sins before God and against his neighbors. At the conclusion of that prophecy, Nathan tells King David this, quote, the Lord has put away your sin." You are not going to die. The Lord has put away your sin. You're not going to die. Die for what? Die for what? Why does Nathan have to tell King David? Because he probably assumed and was fearful that he might be struck to death in an instant. Why does, David have to, why does Nathan have to tell him you're not going to die? Well, it's because David slept with another man's wife. And then he purposefully and intentionally arranged that that man's, that woman's husband, one of his best soldiers and warriors, would go to the front line in one of the most intense scenes of battle, and all the other troops would withdraw, 
which in effect was he allowed the murder of the wife's husband. He slept with another man's wife, and then he plotted the murder of her husband. Uh, can I just say a little bit here? Why, are you guys like so outraged with our president these days in politics? Like people just like flip, like the, the, the world is coming to an end. That's like child's play. This is King David who committed adultery and was shown to have committed murder of that woman's husband. And this is Israel's greatest king. Now, what is Nathan telling David, though? First, God has put away your sin. Now, this is remarkable. It should be. It should be. Meaning, the demonstration that God is going to put away your sin, King David, is you're not going to die right now. I'm not going to take away your life. I'm not going to take away your health. I'm not going to take away your wealth. I'm not even going to take away your kingship. I'm not going to take you away from the possibility of future family. I'm not going to take you away from your calling. You still have a purpose left for me. David, I'm not going to take away any of these things. And most importantly, David, do you know what I'm not going to take away? David, I'm not going to take away myself. I am not going to sever and completely take away my relationship with you. Why? Somehow, God finds a way to put away his sin. That means God for. He forgives you of your sin. God will not treat you according to your sin. God will no longer see your sin. God will not punish you. He will not get back at you for your sin. That's what Nathan told David, even after he committed those sins. At the same time, the Lord has put away his sin. At the same time, in verse 14, quote, the child who is born to you shall die. The child who is born to you shall die. Because you have utterly scorned the Lord, scorned or shown contempt in other English translations, the child will have to die because of scorn. Why? What is this? How is this not punishment for David's sins? I, God, are you little, I, I don't understand. Are you confused? God, are you like a double talking? Are you, do you like to contradict yourself, God? You just told me that you're going to put away my sin, and then you turn around and say, but your child has to die. How is that not punishment for my sins? It's not. It's because David has utterly scorned the Lord. Now, here's what it means to scorn or show contempt. It's to treat something lightly. It's to treat something marginally. It's to treat God peripherally. He's light to you. Not heavy. How else do you explain a king at the height of his military victories, prosperity, fame, power, peace? He is the anointed fulfillment of God's own ancient promises, sitting around one day off of his couch and looks yonder and sees a beautiful naked woman. He noticed she was beautiful. But how does a man at that situation risk it all, jeopardize everything for one sensual fleeting moment? And then how does he go on rationalize and cover it to think that he could bury it? 
by having her husband killed. I'll tell you the only way a man can do that, a very weak man, a very insecure man, a very desperate, needy, dependent man. This is not a free man. And what Nathan the prophet was charging David was this. The reason you did this is because you've been treating God lightly. Hey, David, David, you're like the best worship leader I've ever known. You wrote the best worship songs that are inspired and they made it into holy scriptures. You're one of the most charismatic, effective, gifted worship leaders ever. You write and sing the most beautiful poetry songs that are acceptable to God. But in your heart of hearts, God is dead to you. God is not real to you. God is not heavy and weighty and glorious to you. You have scorned him. You treat him lightly. As a functional, operational reality, there is no real God. You see, my friends, if God is weighty, heavy, glorious, real to you and me, you will not do foolish things. You will not do insecure things. You will not do fearful things. You will not do things purely based on selfishness and feelings. You cannot. If God is real to you, you can notice beauty. But that beauty can never replace the ultimate beauty of God. If God is weighty and real. So why do we do these things? Why does David do these things? All of us do these things. You know why? Because at that moment, at that moment, God is not real and you are scorning the Lord. So what is God up to here? I put away your sin, but the child who is to be born shall die. What is God doing in our seasons of grief? How in the world does he talk like this? Why does he allow it? Well, we all know that why do we grieve? It happens over losing people and things so precious and dear to your heart. And if you happen to be a Christian, a child of God, I can tell you, God is not getting back at you for your sins. God is trying to get you back free from your sins. If you are a Christian believer today, I can tell you there is no season, no strategy, no circumstance. There is nothing in all the world that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not even Satan himself. And what God is up to is he's never coming back at you for your sins to punish you for your sins. But he is getting you back. Setting you free from your sins. How? By removing the very things that you lean on to heavily. By painfully taking away the things that you thought were too weighty. You see, what is real and glorious to you today are the very things that God may one day have to painfully remove so that he can replace all that with himself. If you treat anything but God as God, hmm. any cause, that becomes your God. Your spouse, that becomes your God. Your status, your success, or money, that becomes your God. Your spouse, anything you treat that is not God as God, guaranteed, you will ruin it and it will ruin you. 
death sentence. You're pronouncing the death sentence now. Do you not know this? If your child is your God, if your child is your God, you are pronouncing a death sentence upon that relationship because no child can bear it, neither can you fulfill it. So what is God doing in seasons of grief? What is he doing? What is he doing? He can never be coming back at you for your sins. He could not. He's put it away. He's put it away. But your child will still have to die. You see, for David, I'm not quite sure if he idolized his son. I'm not quite sure if he always said, I need to have a son. I'm not quite sure if his lineage meant everything to him. But we do know this about David. David always thought that he was powerful, he had prowess, he had control. He was running his life. I mean, there's no other guy on the planet. Very few people will ever even have this temptation. Where David literally thought, I could do anything I want in the world whenever, however. And what God had to show, David, was that your life is really not run by you. And I will have to intervene, and the child will have to die, because for David to become a man after God's own heart. Do you guys know this expression? That's kind of a famous characteristic of King David. And we all use it so flippantly, as if you think he just got there, like he was automatically born to be a man after God's own heart. Let me tell you how David became a man after God's own heart. There was only one way. There was only one way. It was only through grief. Do you know at the beginning of 2 Samuel, David mourns and grieves the loss of his absolute best friend, Jonathan, of whom he says, your love to me was better than the love of women. In the middle of 2 Samuel, David has to grieve the loss of an unborn child through Bathsheba, the beautiful woman, another man's wife. At the end of 2 Samuel, David, we find him grieving again because his rebellious son, Absalom, has died in war in an insurrection against his own father. Grief cannot be about God getting back at you, but it's good for you. Here's a third observation, a third observation. Grief can be about the grace of God for you. Grief can be about the grace of God for you. You do have a choice. Oh, yes, you do. In grief, you can fall forward. You can fall face forward. You can fall into the arms of God, or you can just move further away. It's only one of two directions you can go with grief. You can fall into the arms of God or move further away. I'm going to read the last verse of Psalm 88. Psalm 88, it's verse 18. Here's how that psalm concludes. You, God, have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Did you know that that's how one psalm ends? All darkness, no light. Seems hopeless, doesn't it? Oh, uh, hey, where's the bright kind of gospel redemptive? Where, where was that? No, none of it. The Psalms are songs more known for grief and laments than happy songs. And Psalm 88 happens to be the darkest, saddest one of them all. Because that's how it ends. God, you cause my beloved and my best of friends to shun me, forsake me. I'm all alone here. I'm in the dark. But... Do you see what the psalmist is doing with that grief? 
At least he brings it to God. At least he prays it to the Lord. At least he falls and stumbles and fails with it before the Lord. Grace is not about God getting back at you. It can be about the grace of God for you. Because after this unborn child dies, after he is rebuked to his face by the prophet Nathan, in chapter 12, verse 22, here is how King David recognizes and now explains the death of his unborn child. When a servant asked him, King, oh King David, when the child was alive, we saw you fast, we saw you weep. But now that you found he's dead, he gets all cleaned up all of a sudden, and he goes on living. He worships God and goes on living. Why do you think this happens? Here's how David explains it. Here's how David explains it. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? The way that David explains it is why my child was alive, I was banking on one hope. My one hope was this, this was the grace of God. That's about it. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? Here's what King David came to recognize. It would not be unjust for his unborn child to die. David is not demanding equity. He's not expecting fairness. He's not complaining about justice from God. He has come to recognize and explain things as, well, when it really comes to God and me, I suppose it's all having to do with grace. Here's why. David still lives. David still lives. You know, the Old Testament law was really precise. <laughs> you want to talk about equity? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. David, you killed a man. You should die. Like, right there on the spot, instantly. Anything above that, anything beyond that, like, Anything different than that, David, is just sheer grace. That's sheer grace. The reason why David can get up and clean himself and stop fasting and stop mourning and stop grieving after the death of his own child and to worship God and live again is because he learned something about God in a season of grief. Here's what he learned. Here's what he learned. And there's no better time or place or situation in which you can learn it. He learned what the grace of God is like. Where you and I get what we don't deserve. You know, when we're happy and we're at peace and we're on top of the world and everything is going well, please thank and glorify God for that. But I'll tell you as your pastor from my personal experience, Times of prosperity and peace have never really taught me about the grace of God. I don't even know if that option is left open to you in those seasons. The only times in which I have come to grasp and really understand and taste the amazing grace of God is in a season of grief. Because here is the gospel for people who grieve. Here's the gospel for people who grieve. On the one hand, God cannot be after you and getting back at you. He's put away your sin. So stop loathing yourself. Stop being angry with yourself. Stop blaming yourself. Stop being filled with self-pity and all kinds of pride. It's not about your sin. 
God has taken it away. You are not forsaken. You have been forgiven. You cannot be alone. God is with you. And at the same time, you don't have to go around blaming everybody. You don't have to grieve everyone else. You don't have to hate on other people around you because they don't ever fully understand or heal you. You can learn and grasp grace and become gracious. Grief can be about the grace of God. You know, until 1992, I don't think I ever sincerely, regularly praise and thank God every morning that I just got up. I woke up. Have you? When's the last time you've done that? How many of you in this room are utterly moved and like beside yourself? Like you're, you're at a loss. Like I don't know how I could properly thank and praise God enough today because my heart works. My brain is clear. People still even say hi to me. My body is able. I'm alive. I'm alive. If God were fair, if God were just, he's the one that gives me the very energy to even complain back to him. And yet, when you're in a season of grief, all peripheral, silly, senseless things just start to fade away. And you begin to figure out what is most important. And you know what is most important? You know what's most important? Is that you and I live by the sheer grace of God. You know what David learned in grief is that God can become heavier, more glorious, and weighty, and real than ever before because you find God is grieving there, right there with you. So, when you find remarkably in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this promise that God is not going to go back on, he will not break, he will not violate. He came to King David just like he came to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, all wretches in their own right. All of them, wretches. And God promised each of these men something like this. You know, I'm going to promise. I'm going to bring you another son. I'm going to give you a son. And he's going to save the whole world. He's going to be an eternal king whose throne shall last forever and ever and ever. And to him be all the reign and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. From your line of descendants, David, I will bring salvation to the world. But you and I know now for salvation to really come into the world, not only does David's unborn child have to die, God the Father would have to give up his one and only son. He will have to bring another son, not David's son, another greater son. It would be God's own son. And do you know that no, unlike any other God or religion in all the world, go search, go, go find, go search far and wide. God never asks of his children something that he himself has not done. That for salvation to come into the world, to get you back. You see, how does God get you back without destroying you? How does he get you back free from your sins? God had to tell his own son, my son will have to die. And please, please, you're not looking at Jesus right. I'm not talking about that your agony and grief and pain is not great and enormous and crushing. No, don't mishear me. What I am saying is that 
you cannot compare that any other death was like his. You cannot compare the agony and the loss was anything like God the Father's. When he gave up his one and only son as a sin offering to put away all our sins so that you cannot be lost, we cannot lose God, and anything and anyone we ever lost for his sake will be restored exponentially so at the resurrection. Here's my fourth observation we close. First is grief is good for you. There's a season, there's a time. Not only does God allow it, he wants you to do it. Second, grief cannot be about God getting back at you. Not if you're a Christian believer, not if you're in Christ. Third, grief can be about the grace of God for you. And here's the fourth. Grief can bring much good from you. Grief can bring much good from you. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows. He was acquainted and familiar with our griefs. Why? Because he was overly emotional? He was that personality type? Well, because he was weak? I'll tell you why Jesus grieved often. It's because he was perfect. Did you know Jesus grieved because of his perfection, not his deficiency? On this side of heaven, in this fallen, broken world, when Jesus showed up to a funeral, he entered into the grief in the wailing. And in grief, God can bring so much good from you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, the apostle, he gives us his outstanding promise. An outstanding promise straight from the Holy Spirit. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. By the way, notice how he uses two apparently contradictory words. And I don't want you to think, oh, it's an either or. I'm either doing one or the other. That is not what Peter says. Let me read the verse again. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You can find reason. You can actually somehow have hope and rejoice while you are grieving. Then it says in verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you know what grief can bring out? Do you know what grief can bring out? It can bring out so much good for you good from you because if you fall into the nail-scarred, broken, bloodied hands of Christ, he will purify you, he will cleanse you, he will set you free, he will hold you closer, and he's going to make you more like him. In grief, Jesus can make you more like him. Henry Nouwen used to say, grief is the pathway or the doorway to compassion. Peter Scazzaro in his books, Emotionally Healthy Anything, talks about all the things that come from grief. You'll have greater humility. You'll be less covetous, less concerned about trivial things. You'll have fewer fears, willing to take more risks in faith. You can sense and savor spiritual realities. Oh, the list goes on and on and on and on. Grief can bring much good from you in the hands of Jesus. Back to David, last thing. You know, grace is 
seemingly ridiculous at times. It really is. It's, it's like absurd. It's absurd. Because for God to fulfill the promise that a Messiah, eternal King, Savior is going to come from your loins, it's going to become one of your children, David. When God comes back after the death of his unborn child, God allows David to have another son. Do you know it's through who? It's through the same woman that he committed adultery with, whose husband he killed. It's through Bathsheba. And the next son that God allows him to have, David names him Solomon. Solomon. That means shalom, peace. That's David's way of saying back to God, I'm at peace with you. God comes back and says, literally, read the text. God loved him, David, and gave Solomon another name. He gave him a second name. Did you know that? His name was not just Solomon. God gave him a second name. It was called Jedediah. Jedediah. Jedediah means I delight in him. He is my beloved. He is mine and I am yours. Jesus Christ will come through David and Bathsheba. Grace of God incarnate to save the world and put away your sin. So that even if and when your son dies, you know God can grieve with you. Here's my latest proof that those who grieve usually bring out the best. I've had multiple occasions to do this, but two, about two years ago, I had to check, about two years ago, you know that Christ Central had its own grief support group. And they went on for for in my mind, too many weeks, you know, and Chuana counseling director kept telling me, and, you know, it's just the Holy Spirit on our heart telling me, like, Pastor, like, you need this. Of all people, you better go to this. And I went once. I went once. Like, I avoided like a plague. I went once, and I sat down, and all of us had to go around and share, and I could, like, hardly talk because I was choking on my tears because it dawned on me that around that age, two years ago, was the exact age my mom was widowed. And my, when, when my mom became a widow, she had absolutely no support group like this at all. And that broke my heart. But our grief support group, the reason why I won't forget them, is when I looked around the room, those were among the most Brilliant, brightest, resilient, kindest, sacrificial, forgiving, devoted people I've met. And see, that's no coincidence. That's never a coincidence. Grief can bring much good from you. In grief, Jesus comes and grieves with you. So you can go and grieve with those who grieve. Heal those who mourn. Pick up broken lives and broken pieces. Just fall forward. Fall forward. Because he fell for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this day. And now as you want to respond to your gospel, to your word, even with grief, tremendous deep grief over losses, 
over hurts, over missed expectations, failed, devastated dreams and plans. Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would receive us and that you would touch each of my brothers and sisters here this day. We know you are here because you went all the way to the cross to have us back. Lord, thank you for coming down and welcoming, welcoming us into your arms. Hear us now. Let me give you these extended moments of prayer. And please, please, my friends, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of grief. Don't be afraid to grieve. Don't be afraid to cry. Don't be afraid to express exactly what needs to come out. Jesus wants it. Jesus died for it. He's not against you. He's all for you. And he will rebuild. He will resurrect. He wants to make you new like him. Respond with me in prayer. Let's pray. Let's cry out to the Lord.